our great Father, our Lord, we come before Your presence today not because we are worthy, but because You are gracious. You invite us to draw near to You so You can bestow Your gifts upon us. You shower us with love. You pour out Your mercies upon us. You keep covenant with Your people from one generation to the next. O oh, great Father, we thank You for creating us in Your image. We are not the accidents of time and chance, but the products of Your love, wisdom, and power. And You created us not out of need or weakness, but out of the overflowing fountain of delight that You shared with Your Son and the Holy Spirit and Your desire to share Your joy with creatures made in Your image. And O oh, great Father, though we have broken fellowship with You through our sin and indeed through our rebellion, though we have gone astray and gone our own way, though we have not walked in the way of Your commandments, in Your kindness and Your mercy, You have purposed to draw us back to Yourself, to befriend us, to reconcile us to Yourself, to forgive us, to restore the shattered image that we might once again bear Your image faithfully and truly. And Father, You do all of this through Your Son who became man and who in His human nature suffered the punishment we deserve. We thank You now, Father, that You declare the guilty to be not guilty through Jesus Christ. That You adopt us into Your family and make us Your children and heirs. We thank You that You promise us future glory in the resurrection. And even now, we ask that You would work in us the virtue of hope. Father, we thank You that You have poured out Your Spirit upon us through Your Son to bring us to a saving knowledge of Your Son, Christ Jesus, and to work in us faith and repentance. And so may Your Spirit work in us today, O Lord, to stir us up, to stir up in us a love for and a longing for Your Son's final coming. For this is our blessed hope. O Heavenly Father, as this Advent season begins, may we remember Your ancient promises to Your people and how You have fulfilled those promises in Christ's first coming and will fulfill them in an even greater way in His final coming we thank You that Christ has come to fill the world with light. And even now, His light is driving out the darkness. May His light shine in us and upon us and through us so we may know and make known Jesus Christ as the light of the world, the priceless treasure, the one mediator between God and man, the Savior of all who believe, and the One in whose name we pray. Amen. Our lesson of the day is from the book of Malachi, starting with the very end of chapter 2 and going to uh, chapter 3, verse 6. As we read this lesson, pay attention to the connections with the, the theme of the messenger from Exodus 23 and the theme of fire and judgment from 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen carefully to God's Word. You have wearied Yahweh with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming 
And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's lie. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to Yahweh as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says Yahweh of armies. For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. There ends our reading. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have come and revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your written word inspired by your spirit that records for us your great and mighty deeds and opens to us the way of salvation, shows us the path of everlasting life. May your spirit be at work among us today as you have promised to bless the reading and preaching of your word, to illumine our hearts and give us faith to trust you and to tremble before you in holiness and reverence. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, just in time for Advent, I know there were some of you who doubted. Some of you who doubted back in July when I said I was starting a series in Malachi and I was going to land on this passage for Advent. Well, here we are. I did it. Uh, We've come to the fifth section of Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, which contains one of the most important Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the Lord, about the coming of the Messiah. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 Uh, which many of you have probably recognized from Handel's Messiah. I was going to sing that for you, but decided I would just read it. Uh, Malachi 3 verse 1 is used by Mark as the theme verse of his gospel. He combines the, the verse from Isaiah 40 and the verse from Malachi 3 and uses those two verses together, as we heard this morning, as the theme verse of his gospel. But Matthew and Luke also record Jesus explaining his ministry and the ministry of John the Baptist in terms of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. So this is one of, this is a great way to start the Advent season by considering this this prophecy uh, from the book of Malachi, what it means. Uh, as we think about Advent and what it means for us as we look forward to the Lord's final Advent. Uh, It's also providential that uh, Rich has been teaching on the triumphal entry in Mark's Gospel the past couple of weeks uh, because this passage also uh, is directly connected to when Jesus came 
and visited the temple uh, and pronounced judgment uh, on the temple in his in his earthly ministry. With with all of these uh, different themes in view, I want to uh, do a quick recap of how this section, this fifth section uh, in the book of Malachi, uh, fits into the progression that we have seen uh, so far in the preceding chapters. This book, this section of the book begins to unravel and solve and explain some of the dilemmas uh, that have been raised by previous sections. The first section of the book of Malachi established, reminded the people that God's uh, of God's covenant election of Israel. Remember Malachi says, uh, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. He explains that God has promised His faithfulness to the people of Israel, that His deliverance of the people from the Babylonian exile, their return to the land, the rebuilding of the temple, all of that was only because of God's grace and His covenant election of the people of Israel. But the people had obvious questions because of their, uh, apparently their situation was one of great lowliness and weakness in the eyes of the world. The temple that was rebuilt was far less glorious than Solomon's temple. They had no king. They, had, uh, they were very low in the eyes of the world. So how could these great promises of God be true in the midst of that situation? The second section then goes on to draw, uh, highlight a sharp um, contradiction between the corruption of the worship in Israel that God condemned with this promise that God's glory would be great among the nations. So the question arises, how will the nations offer acceptable worship to God? How will God's glory, how will His name be made great among the nations if His own people are offering corrupt worship before Him? The third section is a specific indictment against the Levites who are called the messengers of the covenant. The Levites were set aside and they were supposed to lead the people in worship to teach the people God's laws and instruct them in God's ways, and they had totally failed. They had fallen down on the job, and in fact, they were themselves corrupt and unfaithful, leading the people astray. So what, what is God going to do? How will God recover uh, the situation if the messengers of the covenant are themselves corrupt and unfaithful? The fourth section that we looked at uh, last time I preached on Malachi is the center of the book structurally. And it ties together the theme of marital unfaithfulness with the theme of spiritual unfaithfulness. The, the marital infidelity, the unjustified divorce, the intermarriage with pagan women that was going on in Malachi's day that the Lord condemned was drawn as a direct a correlation, a representation of what was happening spiritually with the people who were God's bride. They had been unfaithful to their own spouses, which was just a symptom of their spiritual adultery 
to God, their, their covenant Lord. And remember, God says He wants godly seed. He desires godly seed. That was one of the primary purposes uh, for marriage, for giving Adam and Eve the residue of the Spirit so that they would have godly seed. How, were, how is God going to obtain this godly seed if the people are unfaithful and breaking covenant in their marriages? Here in the fifth section then, we began to see the answer to some of these dilemmas. The fifth section begins with one of Malachi's trademark indictments against the people. He, um, Their actions have spoken louder than their words. So what he does is he puts words in their mouth that they, they're appalled at. They're appalled at the, uh, the words that Malachi accuses them of speaking. He says, Malachi says in chapter 2, verse 17, You have wearied Yahweh with your words. But you say, how have we wearied Him? Malachi accuses them and they always play innocent. They always play dumb. And Malachi says, because you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh and He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, whether or not the people were actually saying these things or whether Malachi uh, was just accusing them of acting in accordance with this type of, of thought pattern, the point is that this is what their actions betray, this sort of attitude toward God. Their hypocrisy and their self-righteousness is evidenced and summarized by these kinds of accusations against God. Where is the God of justice? This kind of question can mean a number of different things depending on who's asking it and what they mean when they ask it. This is one of, if you think about it, this question and other forms of this question have been asked uh, ever since the beginning of the world. Christians, non-Christians, believers, non-believers, skeptics and seekers, oppressors and those who are oppressed have all asked this question or some form of it, and people in our own day still ask this question, where is the God of justice? Some ask it in faith while some ask it in unbelief as an accusation. Some ask this question in trust, while others ask it in a spirit of entitlement. Think about the different ways that, that we can ask this type of question. Where is the God of justice? Said with sort of a sneer. This is a way of mocking God, of accusing Him of being absent, of accusing Him uh, of not even being just at all. Like the priests in Malachi's day, like the scoffers that Second Peter tells us about, like the new atheists or the hardcore secularists in our own day, many have said, have asked the question, where is the God of justice, not 
not even believing that he exists, mocking those who would believe in such a naive, simple idea. Or, more selfishly, people can ask this sort of question because they want, they're demanding their rights. Or they have, they think they are entitled. God owes me something. Where is the God of justice? He owes me. God owes me for all this suffering that He has put me through or that I have been through. Or God promised this and that. And I, I want Him to come and give me what I deserve. This is like James and John demanding privilege and authority. Or like many in our own day who think that God is holding out on them. Where is the God of justice? Or think about it like those who ask it in faith. Because there is a way to ask this question in faith. There is a way to call on God to do what He promised. The Psalms give us this kind of permission to ask this question in faith. To call on God to fulfill His promises. Think of Simeon and Anna eagerly awaiting the promised Messiah. Waiting for the God of justice in faith. Waiting for God to show up and redeem Israel as He had promised. Or like many faithful Christians in our own day who labor in our own country or labor in their vocations, labor in mission fields around the world crying out for the God of justice to fulfill His promises, to subdue His enemies, and to disciple the nations as He has promised. Or, we can ask this question for God to come and bring deliverance in time of suffering. Think of David, King David in the Psalms. Or think of Job crying out to God for vindication. Think of persecuted Christians being killed, tortured, displaced, or marginalized for their faith. Or think of us, ordinary Christians, confronting grieved by evil and injustice in the world around us, in our own circles of influence, calling on God to come and bring His justice and His peace. Well, as you can probably guess based on the context, Malachi's audience was, I think it's safe to say, was not asking this question in faith. The priests of Israel had shown themselves to be hardened hypocrites. They thought that God owed them. They were accusing God of blessing the evildoers and forsaking those, they, themselves, who were so righteous. They thought God wasn't treating them as well as they deserved. And so they were demanding their rights. As we look at the first part of chapter 3, we'll see that God was not at all impressed with their self-righteousness. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 6, God reminds the priests of Israel to whom this address is primarily directed. God reminded the priests who were calling out, demanding their rights, 
that it was only by His justice, it was only by His faithfulness that He had preserved them to even be able to ask this question. It was only because God is just that they had the chance to accuse God of injustice. In chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord answered the accusations of injustice with a pronouncement that He Himself would come to ensure that His covenant was fully enforced. This first part, verse 1, tells us who. Who is going to come? But the verse leaves some ambiguity. If you were listening closely, you noticed that there are two messengers described in chapter 3, verse 1. Listen carefully to what is said about these two messengers that Yahweh promises to send and set things right and enforce the covenant and make sure that justice is carried out. Listen what, uh, how the verse begins. I, this is the Lord, Yahweh, speaking in the first person. I send my messenger, and he, my messenger, will prepare the way before me, before Yahweh. So you have Yahweh speaking in the first person, promising to come, but before he comes, there will be a messenger who will come and prepare the way. Yahweh Himself is coming, but He's sending someone to make preparation, to announce His imminent arrival, to summon the people for judgment. If you recall from previous sermons, or the name Malachi, the, the name of the book here, the name of the prophet, means my messenger. So this is a this is a theme throughout the book of Malachi that really comes into sharp focus right here. What it literally says, the Lord says, I send Malachi and he will prepare <clears throat> he will prepare the way before me. God is promising, the Lord himself is promising to come and to send a new Malachi before his face to prepare the people to meet God face to face. But there is a second messenger identified in the second part of verse 1. Even after Yahweh Himself has said that He would come and send a new Malachi, a new messenger before Him to prepare His way, the Lord goes on to say, and He shifts into the third person, He says, and the Lord... Not, not the name Yahweh, the word Adonai, the name Lord or Master. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says Yahweh of armies. This is clearly speaking of Yahweh Himself. It seems as if now God is speaking of Himself in the third person. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. Right? The temple is the house of Yahweh. The palace of Yahweh. This this can only be uh, the Lord talking about Himself in the third person. And He says that the messenger of the covenant. So you have my messenger, the new Malachi who's going before the Lord. But the Lord refers to Himself in the third person as the messenger 
of the covenant, who will be the delight of the people. He is coming, says Yahweh of armies. This is all a little bit confusing, but it's this is one of the why this this is why this verse gets quoted so much in the New Testament. Yahweh begins speaking of himself in the third person. He switches to the third person and describes himself as the Lord. He describes the temple as his own possession. He describes himself as the messenger of the covenant. If this is not Yahweh, then this is certainly someone very important because anybody who claims to be the Lord of the temple is claiming that the priest, the whole priesthood is subject to his authority. The the temple is his palace. He refers to himself as Lord, which is a kingly title that has echoes in passages like Psalm 110, where King David says, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So there is a priestly dimension, the Lord coming to his temple. There's a kingly dimension of the mention of the Lord. And there also is a clear prophetic dimension. This title, the messenger of the covenant, is a prophetic title. Uh, Prophets were often covenant enforcers or those who initiated new covenants uh, between God and the people. And so this person, whoever it is, is obviously someone extremely important, extremely powerful, with a priestly, kingly, and prophetic ministry. Thankfully, Jesus clears all up all this ambiguity up by identifying himself as this messenger of the covenant. And he identifies John the baptizer as the new Malachi who was sent ahead to prepare his way. We'll see this at the end of the book of Malachi. This messenger who's going to be sent ahead is referenced again, and he's called Elijah the prophet. But for now, let's just uh, focus on on this passage here and what this means that Jesus applies this verse to himself and to John the Baptist. When Jesus identified himself as the messenger of the covenant spoken of by Malachi, he was claiming to be Yahweh incarnate. Jesus was claiming to be nothing less then the covenant Lord of Israel, Yahweh, come in the flesh. There's no mistaking it. Uh, you, you might could uh, find other passages that are a little bit less clear, but this one right here uh, doesn't leave any wiggle room. Either Jesus is who He says He is, or He isn't who He said He is. And here He is clearly claiming to be the Lord, the 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 chief over the temple, the kingly Lord, and the prophetic messenger of the covenant. God Himself come in the flesh to enforce His covenant. He was claiming the temple as His own. He was claiming to be the high priest par excellence. He was claiming to be this royal figure, the Davidic Lord to whom all Israel owed allegiance. Notice the connections with Melchizedek, who was this 
priest-king figure that's identified in Genesis and then again in Hebrews. Jesus was claiming to be the prophet of God promised to Moses who had come not simply to reinforce the current covenant, but to usher in, to inaugurate a new and better covenant with Himself as the living temple of God's presence. Now the next three uh, verses, verses 2-4, through explain the reason and the result for the coming of Christ, for the coming of the messenger of the covenant. The messenger is said to be coming for the purpose of purifying the priests and making their offerings acceptable to God once again. The priests and the people, as we've seen in previous sections in Malachi, the priests and the people had defiled themselves through corrupt worship to such an extent that their worship had become unacceptable to God. In fact, in chapter 1, you may recall, God says, I wish somebody would shut the doors and lock you guys out of the temple because this has gotten so bad. Your hypocrisy and your self-righteousness and you're bringing these worthless offerings thinking that you can give me the leftovers or scrape the bottom of the barrel uh, and give me your garbage is a huge insult. They brought tribute offerings which is one of the themes in Malachi, they brought tribute offerings that were supposed to please God, to call on God to come and bless them in accordance with the covenant. But instead, their worthless offerings only incited God's wrath and jealousy. And so, the Lord has to come Himself to purify, to judge the people The people are accusing God of injustice. Uh, The people who are accusing God of injustice are going to get way more than they bargained for. Only the righteous, only the humble can stand, withstand divine judgment. And so Malachi says, who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? Only the humble, only the the righteous, only the faithful, only those who confess their sins and seek forgiveness are able to withstand divine judgment. They will be purified. They will be refined. And the images here that the Lord uses are uh, very common biblical themes for judgment. The imagery of fire as uh, we saw in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, among other places, fire is often associated in the Bible, not only with uh, judgment specifically, but with God's presence more generally. God's, God most often manifested His presence as fire. The burning bush, Mount Sinai, the Shekinah glory, the fire that lit the altar, on and on and on, the chariot of fire, the flaming swords of the cherubim, all these uh, imagery, images of fire speak of God's holiness, speak of God's jealousy that uh, flares up uh, when the people are unfaithful. And so the prophets, this is a common theme among the prophets, to speak of God smelting the people, 
to speak of God heating up like a refiner, heating up uh, a precious metal so hot that all the dross would be consumed or that the metals could be separated, melted down, purified, and refined. But lye is also described here. This wasn't soap. Some of your translations say soap, but soap was not invented by this point in history. This is, this is lye. Uh, lye was used by a fuller uh, to clean clothes. Uh, in order to wash clothes, you had to have lye that you dissolved in water. You would soak your dirty clothes in water, and then the clothes that had been soaked in the lye water mixture were then scrubbed and, and rinsed out. This is the image uh, of another image of purification and judgment. And notice that both of these images involve separation. They involve separating the dross from the precious metal. They involve removing the dirt from the clean clothes. There is uh, an evaluation process, but there is also a separation process uh, that takes place when God judges His people. And God is described, the messenger of the covenant is described as coming and sitting in judgment. He is sitting as a judge, supervising, evaluating, separating the righteous from the unrighteous, the faithful from the unfaithful, the hypocritical from those who trust in God's mercy. It's also uh, important to note, although there are uh, so many things here um, that I won't have time to cover this morning, it's important to note the connection between... Uh, notice the different aspects of judgment that are mentioned. In verse 1, the messenger, the Lord, is specifically coming where? He's coming to His temple. This is where the judgment begins. The Lord says, I'm coming to my temple and I'm going to purify and refine the sons of Levi so that their worship, their offerings, will again be acceptable to God. In verse 5, he says there's like a second uh, mention of judgment. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. So it's like a second type of judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says Yahweh of armies. The lack of fearing God, the failure to fear God is sort of uh, the root of all these other sins. But if we were to pick if we had to guess, where would God start? Where would we start judgment? If we were God, where would we start judging a corrupt society? Would we go first to the temple and straighten out the priest, straighten out the corrupt worship in the temple? Probably not. Most people uh, would probably want to start down in verse 5 uh, with... Uh, those who oppress and swear falsely and those who don't care for uh, sojourners, 
that might uh, seem to be the logical place to start, is to start with the, the really bad people and then come in to the church where people aren't so bad, maybe, as those out there in the world doing really bad stuff. But where does God start? Where does judgment start? 1 Peter 4.17 tells us very plainly. Peter says in his day, anticipating the coming uh, judgment on Jerusalem, Peter says, judgment begins at the household of God. God expects the most from those who have received the most from Him. It's just like parents with their children. You don't go around disciplining everybody else's kid. You discipline your own kid, right? They're your child. They are, you are their responsibility. Um, you should pay most close attention not to how bad everybody else's kids are, but to how bad your own kids are, right? Uh, this is where judgment begins uh, with the church uh, because God's covenant people are, are held to uh, a higher standard in some, in, some, in some ways. But there is also a dynamic that um, we see throughout Scripture that the, the problems in a broader culture are only symptoms of the problems in God's church. So if there are problems in a society, you can almost always trace those back to the failure of God's people in some way or another in worship. So, as the church goes, so goes the world. And if we want to straighten out our society, if we want to reform a culture, a civilization, it starts with worship. And so that's where God's judgment begins. God comes, promises here, to come and judge His own people first. Come and start in the temple. Start with worship. Get worship in order. And everything else begins to flow out of that proper worship. Worship always shapes or misshapes culture. Down uh, in the end of uh, chapter or verse 3 and 4, we see the result of God's separating, refining judgment. That it's for the purpose of purifying priests and people so that their worship would again be acceptable and pleasing to God. As we saw last week, uh, Rich was preaching on Jesus' pronouncement of judgment on the temple and on the, the fig tree. Um, Jesus was not simply pronouncing judgment on the temple system because there were a few people who were greedy or crooked in the money changing department and they needed to be cleaned out and then everything could go on as usual. Jesus came not to reinstitute a pristine old covenant worship system, but to inaugurate a completely new and better covenant that would allow God's faithful people to worship in spirit and in truth. No longer 
would the Levites mediate between God and the people in a temple made with hands? With the coming of Christ, Judah and Jerusalem, the entire people of God, would be made into a living temple and would be constituted as a royal priesthood who offer themselves as living sacrifices through the Spirit. And of course, when God begins to purify the worship of His people, when His people are consecrated as a priestly nation who are offering spiritual sacrifices to God that are acceptable to God, as we've said before, so goes the, as the church goes, so goes the world. Well, as, uh, as the church goes, so go the whole world. The nations will then be able to bring, uh, be brought into the kingdom of God. Their worship, they will begin to be discipled and to worship God as He requires. So the good news of Malachi chapter 3 the good news to begin our observance of Advent as we look forward to the celebration of Christmas and as we prepare for the coming of the, of the Lord uh, each Lord's Day and the final coming of the Lord at the end of history, the good news of Malachi 3 is that the messenger of the covenant, the God of justice Himself, has come He has satisfied the wrath of God. He has atoned for our sins. And He has reconciled us to God so that God might be the just and the justifier of sinners. Each Lord's Day, the messenger of the covenant, right here, right now, through the preaching of God's Word, the the sword of the Spirit that pierces uh, to even joint and marrow, God consecrates us as a living sacrifice. He draws near to us to evaluate us, to evaluate the work of our hands that we bring before God in our tithes and offerings. And He comes and He blesses the faithful. He comes and He refines the humble. And we can look with hope and anticipation to the last day when Christ will come and sit as judge over all the nations because we know that we we are in Christ. We can anticipate. We can prepare for. We can labor in hope of Christ's final coming because we know that the Father will accept the work of Christ for us and the Spirit's work in us. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in this time of this mortal life in which Your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when He shall come again in His glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through Him who lives and reigns with You in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.